Chapter 4 Grandma Grin <laughs> Isn't it lovely? All alone, your two hearts made of glass, your mind full grown. Bring me together on your own. Hello, love, you're not welcome home. Into the darkness, your abode forbade terrain to be sane or cloned. Bring me together, please. Don't you go, Grandma, I've come home. I thought I'd found a way. I thought I'd found a long way round. Walking out of time. Searching for a better place now. Round the bend we go. As the memories break out. The skyscrapers of the northern Aquitanian citadel were bleeding on this night. A cold night of unforgiving gales that would only grow colder. And on the rooftop of one of Northside Central's aviation facilities, my eyes slowly rose towards the stars of old. The factory was a solid-state block of parasteel, just over a mile high and half a mile wide. A massive shipyard dedicated purely to the mass production of cheap, affordable air travel for the discerning, mid-to-lower-class Aquitanian citizen. The facility was owned by the Guild of Vandalore, known simply by most as the Guild. Many, many cycles ago, the Guild was originally formed to mine stars, that was before a team of Aquitanian scientists and a disgruntled subgroup of mystics declared most stars in this reality sentient. After that, the family moved into transport with a small side order of celestial smuggling. Relocating a celestial being, in secret no less, was difficult, expensive, and highly illegal. But the guild's power rivaled even that of the High Council, and so even many native activists who had a lot more clout here than they do on Earth, by the way, tend not to mess with the Guild. It's bad for business, for all concerned. The Guild, of course, had their fingers in a lot of dodgy, prepossessed, poisonous pies. One day they were selling you this, the next the Guild's private militia forces would institute martial law against that. Neighborhood-specific quarantines, too often used to control the underclasses, much like on Earth, I suppose. My point is, listeners, that the Guild possesses a great deal of information. And that's exactly what I needed. Information. My eyes moved from the stars above to the shipyard below. There were magnetic conveyor belts as far as the eye could see. At certain intervals along the conveyor were automated magna clamps and laser arms, they worked in tandem, fusing and welding various skeletal parasteel parts together, before either being shipped off to the display showrooms around the city or, further up, to the loading bays on the facility's upper level. Up here, new and improved models were regularly tested or let out to potential buyers for a limited period of their existence. Here in the factory, most of those potential buyers tended to consist of other local vendors, the clever ones who liked to test the vehicles for themselves before purchasing them in bulk. Not all of them were as smart as they thought they were, however. One particular being comes to mind, of course. The one I am sincerely hoping will show his shriveled, leathery, jelly-bean thing he likes to call a face. Otherwise, this would have been a rubbish place to start the episode. Oh no, there he is. Right on time, Renzuk Goldur, a low-ranking associate of a rising rival family who recently started buying a load of vehicles from the guild, stripping them down and selling them on the black market, unregistered, mostly to criminals, other rival families, or sometimes even to less observant members of the guild themselves. The higher-ups within the Vandalore family didn't seem to be aware of this rival family's little scam. 
Not yet, anyway. <laughs> Gordur was a short, dry, ashy fellow, with a bald head, just over three eyes. He lost half the fourth one in a childhood accident, and a face that seemed to be constantly contorted into an unpleasant expression, like he was eternally smelling something awful. Most likely himself. Most other people tended to stay well over two meters away from that thing, given that certain inhabitants on the neighboring planet of Zatanna, who were addicted to a certain recreational spice native to their lovely planet, had a regular vomiting cycle. Developed, of course, over a long-term addiction period. The spice was said to seal up the user's, let's call it, exit hatch, through which waste is usually passed. I apologize if you're eating, listeners. Or do I? <laughs> anyway, the result causes the user's internal organs to warp slightly, electing every other hole in the body as replacement for convenient disposal. I am, of course, attempting to be delicate. Luckily, however, Gordor bought the Speedster's factory fresh, and so the ship's interiors tended to be protected by a transparent antibacterial force field. Zerzero once wagered that they still sent someone or something in to do a second fumigation. Certain Akatanian mechanics tended to doubt their own factory's efficiency where an outsider was concerned, especially one afflicted with that unfortunate condition. Unfortunate or not, I needed to get to him. My face isn't exactly an unrecognizable one around Northside Central, but this was too bloody important. My bandana crawled up over my extensive mouth and nose, hiding my permagrin from view. It was the same piece of sentient fabric that my third eye tends to use as a dream catcher during nightmare meditation. Trust me, it's much easier than warping my face. I had a feeling that that would come later. Plus, this way I could breathe in my dreams while on mission. It made being beyond House's threshold much more bearable. To passers-by, I merely looked like a well-dressed consumer, a credit marker in the crowd. Ahead of me, about forty yards and a couple of vehicle chambers over, I spied Goldor shunting himself into a speedster widely used for private transportation. A four-seater, over six feet long, with a burgundy hull, optional open top with a grey interior. Its edges were sleek and curved. At its rear were four separate mechanical braking flaps, on the outer side of which were medium-powered thrust nozzles that were limited to a speed of just under Mark I. The Speedster's windshield had a message board installed to enable paying customers to determine what service was on offer. In this case, the factory workers used this function to their advantage when letting them out to punters. I swung my legs over the four-foot-high barrier, poised to drop to the floor below. The message on the board switched from vacant to in use when Goldor powered on the engine, once reaching the sub-level chamber I was also aiming my body for. I dropped down off the ledge, the metallic whine of the vehicle scanner's preparatory diagnostics just loud enough to mask the noise of my landing. Goldur would only have control for a limited period, then the factory would override the controls for the return journey. Goldur cruised down to the cylindrical exit runway, at the midpoint of which stood the cuboid-shaped vehicle scanner, designed to notify any nearby guards if some thief was attempting to conceal a weapon or a piece of equipment that could be used to deactivate the proximity clamps controlled by the factory to stop anybody who was feeling clever from straying too far. The scanner itself was automated, but housed a maintenance hatch big enough for a humanoid or bot to fit inside. Just need to... <coughs> remove... <clears throat> this and open sesame. I have to say, listeners, it's a little cramped in here. Need to get to the higher platform. Up we go then. Don't say I don't take you places. Vehicle scan initiating. Here we go then. <laughs> Trust Goldor to choose a speedster with a sunroof. In four, three, two. 
A chasm of fear opened up within Goldor's still-beating heart. The impact above his head seemed to be timed with the vehicle scanner's release chime, and so instinctively he put his foot on the accelerator, hurtling out of the hangar bay at gathering speed. I was sprawled on the speedster's sunroof, my face and nose pressed hard against the Victra glass, capable of withstanding a substantial amount of G-force, given its upper atmosphere capabilities and resistance to blaster fire and debris passing at unknown velocities not to mention densities. Victra glass, though, was no match for my exceedingly thick skull, and so, as if in some crazed, cackling mania, I began thwacking my head hard against the sunroof. The terror in Goldor's eyes became more and more pronounced with each passing impact. Veins of shattering glass spread from the epicenter, like a virus trapped within a spinning web of lethal rain. Knock, knock, bang, bang. Would you mind opening this here sesame? <laughs> A cry of Zetanane defiance. Goldor grabbed furiously at the speedster controls, pulling up into the purple clouds that surrounded most of the Northern Citadel's financial district. Hopefully the remote dampeners used primarily by shipyard staff as anti-theft monitors would be temporarily disabled thanks to the electromagnetic interference sourced from the center of the dead glow clouds as they were known. They looked innocent enough unless they begin to sense that you're passing through them thoughtlessly. Not a good idea. <laughs> Moments later, Goldor found himself suspended at the center of the dead glow cloud by the naturally occurring electromagnetic field. He was clinging to the speedster's rear spoiler, cursing and hurling obscenities at the sudden backseat driver. Me. I stared, china cup in hand, sipping and spitting. I told you, bad idea. Now I've got you exactly where I want you. That's been happening a lot lately. Now then, are you gonna start talking, or are you just gonna hang there? Three. Hundreds of feet below the rumbling, rolling clouds, far beneath the increasingly perplexing and troublesome sequences of seasons anew, Jamie Mortimer walked. Jamie Mortimer listened. Jamie Mortimer breathed. The street breathed with her, in and out, in and out. Acatania and his beautiful indifference towards things such as her, whatever she was. Did they see her, those who passed her by, or was she a ghost to them too? Maybe she decided she would rather no one see her than everyone. As per my earlier instruction, act natural. Draw attention to yourself and the spell is broken? No, not broken. Just disturbed. Okay. Things work differently on Acatania. The general public are somewhat more steely than you might be used to. I am from Scotland. All you have to do is wait for the target to arrive and keep him in the right spot by any means necessary. Did you fondle the circuit? Did I what now? The telepathic circuit so you know who you're bloody looking for. House gave me the file. I read it with my eyes. Not everything needs to be beamed directly into my brain. Yeesh, you must be new. What's that supposed to mean? Do you even know what he looks like? There was a description in the file. An image in the occipital lobes is worth at least 10,000 words. Leave it alone, lobe fondler. Excuse me? He's not here. What do you mean? I mean, I don't see anyone matching the target's description. And that's saying something, given the amount of alien life that passes through here. You think that entire species originate on the planet where the greatest number of them happen to reside? Much like life, evolution doesn't always make sense. Sorry, Red, you lost me. Never mind. 
Just keep your feet active. Remember, you're my scope. Your scope? How high are you? Hello? Typical. On the ground, Jamie shook her head vehemently, selecting the second in a group of three back streets that led to the rear entrance of one of Aquitania's many bloodletting society buildings. The building was of course shared with a rundown hospital suitable for those of a shady and or desperate disposition. Trading blood keeps us together, after all. As she turned right and concealed herself behind the building wall, a tall, hooded figure appeared. A huge thing with long, ropey, glistening limbs and dripping cloak lumbered out of the hole in the adjacent building's wall. Jamie closed her eyes and listened. The thing sniffed, then sighed, then swiveled. Jamie tensed, her fingers closing around a lock of her long, dark hair, poised to yank. The next few seconds seemed to stretch as if the creature, whatever it was, Jamie didn't know, she knew only that it wasn't the being she was looking for, was going to remain there forever. It sighed again, as if it could sense her presence and found it compelling enough to linger. Jamie could feel its conflict, but also a spark of resolve as it began to move towards the busy street. A passing furious one dropped to one knee in mid-stride feeling the weight as was her penance, and proceeded to vomit right in the path of the tall, shadowy figure as it turned into the street. Jamie peeked around the corner. She exhaled when she saw the state of the furious wings, unbreakable and yet broken nonetheless, feathers burning in time with falling tears, the choking sound of misplaced days and future ways that turned to haze. Jamie saw the creature pause to consider the poor being. There was another long moment, and then the hooded figure sighed, but this was a deeper sigh, one of avid contemplation that for some reason caused Jamie to close her eyes once again. They weren't closed for very long, less than five seconds, as she would remember later, but upon opening, the hooded figure and the furious one were both gone. Jamie exhaled her eye now caught by the crowd gathering on the market street's opposite side. They were all looking the other way, most likely at the grand entrance to the northeastern temple of the elite guard. Using her newfound knowledge, Jamie took to the air, slowly, rising further up the narrow separation. Feeling the building's edge, she gripped for stability, still not relying too much on the arts alone. With ease, she pulled herself up onto the roof of the society building and gazed down upon the growing crowd. They all seemed to be pushing and clambering over one another, kicking and shoving, scratching and pulling, even biting. They looked to be from all corners of the globe and beyond. Whoever it was they were gathering to see, he, she or they certainly had a wide range of supporters. Acatania was said to be the spiritual center of the northern finite curve. Those were my words, however, and I have been accused of being biased in the past. I trusted Jamie to form her own thoughts and feelings as to what she saw before her. What would it be that caught her eye? The unforgiving reddish-gray skyline, low and claustrophobic, where it met the protective sphere that surrounded the various papal districts on the outskirts of Northside Central. Endless and expansive where it met the central divisions of the Kia, leading all the way to the forever newly ancient lands of the Ayat, where it all started, and of course, where it would all end. I once lived in the lower side of the northeastern Kia Vendetta, one of many districts all seemingly separated, but all working in tandem with the fire from the old southern order to sustain the planet's north side its entire hemisphere in fact in its current form. The safe zone. The northern horizon. I would like to say that my time in the Kia Vendetta was brief, as fleeting as a kiss during this fifth season anew. But no, listeners, have you ever had many faces, many lives, sworn to protect those you've hurt the most and sometimes never forced to pay the price for those you love and their lack of living? Don't answer that. I'm not sure I want to know. My point is, 
Jamie's target is one of immense importance. Meet Nash Radar, a veteran, shall we say, of papal manipulation and galactic infiltration. He's been on the fringes of Aquitanian politics for many cycles, mostly adopting a philanthropic approach by repurposing our homegrown underwater space matrices to reduce overcrowding, helping to rebuild the ancient wasted cities that have been ravaged by wars fought on a celestial scale for thousands of years. Aquitanian born and bred. His time down on Earth, it was told, was one of the greatest success stories. Made Pope. Twice. Somehow, I'm betting it was two totally different centuries. Point being, Nash Radar, much like Renzuk Goldur, was a crafty bastard. In Goldur's case, an obvious putrid sore on the many faces of society that kept coming back no matter how much you squeezed. And in Radar's case, hidden killer, the phantom psychopath, masquerading as a savior and guide, planting his smiling seeds of doubtful deeds behind the scenes. He has to go, but killing him wasn't an option. We needed him exactly where he was. Target located. How come I always get the ugly ones? You wait till you see the state of this guy. Move slowly. Everyone's sure to be on high alert. From what I can see, he's got everyone pretty captivated. Tune out his words, they'll only poison you. It was true. The various onlookers seemed to be in some kind of ghostly trance. Above, as she drew closer, Jamie noticed the surrounding silence. Utter, butt-naked silence. Jamie thought she might have actually heard a pin drop from more than 50 feet away. Between her and the temple was the width of the market street, and several marble-like structures extending hundreds of yards above her head, built in tribute to the elites after the first crushing of the old Southern Order. They were both tall enough and obscurely shaped enough for Jamie to shield herself from view. It wasn't the crowd she was worried about, it was the elite guards themselves. Inches in front of the transparent force field barrier, lining the whole way around the raised platform used for ceremonial events, stood one elite after another. Getting close to the target was almost impossible. Suicide, even. Under those tactical visors, which obscured their faces almost entirely, Jamie could sense one thing amongst all the noise of their programming. Determination. You knew, Jamie said. Say again? I queried. It's a little loud in the cloud. <laughs> loud in the cloud. You get it? Blimey. Trying to make a Vandalore thug and a dead witch laugh? You two clearly aren't my audience. Foriana, you go for cross the crowd. I don't care if you're upside down. That's no excuse not to laugh at things that are funny. Shut up, Christ. Can you torture him a little quieter, please? You knew I wouldn't be able to get to Rada directly. What? Yes, of course I knew. It's time to put your skills to use. Or else... Or else Shaira died for nothing. Yeah, I get it. Fuck you. Come on, I've made it easier than you think. Yes, there's a crowd, but this is Aquitania. You've got your pick of at least 89 low to mid-level telepaths. They'll know that I'm probing them. Ordinarily, yes, but lucky for you, they're more than a bit distracted by the main event, as it were. Just concentrate, and do nothing more than sit, dormant. You're a mere spectator. Think of the crowd below as a giant metaphysical magnifying glass. That really, really doesn't help. Fine. Make sure you get a front row seat. But be subtle about it. <laughs> Four. There was a humanoid in a tall, crone-skin hat in the middle of the crowd. A farmer, as it turned out, lived outside the city walls in the southwesterly frontier. A somehow peaceful place given it bordered a near-distant land of fire and destruction. From whence the old order hailed, 
and where they have cowered away. This humanoid in a crone skin hat would often watch the southern volcanic mountains in the south while he tended to trees that dreamed. Sometimes they died, and as they died would have nightmares of terrors untold. And so he would dig them up, screaming, and attempt to perform surgery to either make them whole again from the inside out, or put them out of their misery from the outside in. This humanoid would do nicely. Not of his own accord, but nonetheless going with the increasing wind and liking it, the crone-skinned hat, or rather the person wearing it, began to move through the crowd. The people around him were still, in mind. In body they were almost swaying, in near unison, like metronomes set to a specific rhythm. Nash Radar's rhythm. Was this crone-skinned hat immune to the broadcast, or was it or rather he, simply operating on a different frequency. Jamie didn't really have time to consider that. Why had she picked this guy? Was it because of the bulge in his pocket, or was he just pleased to see her? He has a weapon, Jamie said aloud. She hadn't been able to stop herself. Of course he does, most dream farmers do. He's usually large. Trees can get very violent, trust me. And... Don't talk too much, or he'll hear you. No, not you, you big bag of spicy dicks. Well, this weapon isn't big. This is small. Like, really small. Like the kind of blaster you'd keep in your boot for spare. Probably the only way to sneak it through security into the Papal District. He could face execution if he's caught with that. It's too late to switch the link. I know it is. But why does he have it? Who knows? You! You usually know! I don't know everything. Do I, Renzuk, my good man? Yeah, I don't, for instance, know the location of one specific medical storage facility. And if you keep holding out on me like this, I'm gonna have to get really nasty. Not before things turn nasty down here, Jamie said. And she was right. The humanoid in the crone-skin hat had broken through to the front of the crowd. The closer he got, the more aggressive his intentions appeared, which began to spark concern in the elite guard, who themselves began to adopt a defensive stance. Crone-skin hat began to roar in earnest, momentarily removing his hand from his pocket to beat his chest in pure rage. You killed them! He shouted, presumably at Rada. You killed them all! The humanoid reached into the pockets of his torn and tattered work trousers and brandished the tiny blaster for all to see. The guards froze. Jamie froze. Above, I floated in the light and the wind of the dead glow cloud, like a proud flag against stormy sea air. Yards away floated Goldor in the center of the cloud's suspension matrix, like a fucking feather in a hurricane. It wouldn't be long before the cloud was charged and ready to release a bolt so furious it would cut into the terracrete that made up half of the buildings in the papal sector. That was a common occurrence. What wasn't was raining corpses, at least not in this district. I have to say I'm impressed with the amount of bullshit you've come out with. But there are other ways to get information. I just hoped I wouldn't have to perform surgery. I suppose a headless corpse will have to do. Rada will know it's you. He'd recognize your foul stench anywhere. See where being silent has got you, Renzuk? To think I was gonna let you keep your head. Oh well. And down we go. <laughs> I put a finger to my ear. Well, did it work? Did he look scared? You could say that. I can hear a lot of screaming. Getting the impact snapped them all out of their trance. Yeah, not to mention the smell. What the hell was inside this guy? You don't want to know. If you wanted him scared, it worked. Though, he looked even more horrified when one of the elite guards proceeded to chop off the hand that was holding the farmer's blaster. He's now trying to use his hat to soak up the blood. And it's everywhere. 
I think some even went in my mouth. And I don't know how that's possible since I'm 30 feet in the air. Oh. Oh dear. Oh dear? Well, at least this hat will soak up all that blood. It is made from crone skin, after all. We should amstray pronto, Batface. As far as the Vandalure family is concerned, there's just been an unplanned death in the ranks. So things are going to start popping. Meet at the statue of Zenua, northwest of Sharma Way. Okay, got it. I'm also going to buy some mouthwash. Good call. Try the nearby hover and paddle boat terminal. Five. That was some weird-ass terminal, Jamie said, taking a sip of the blueberry-flavored biomass slushy she had opted for. Gift shop wasn't bad, though. Love a wee shop. I leant against the statue of Zenua, tall and bold in her prime, fighting alongside the directives. So many millions of cycles ago, so, so far from now... And, as Jamie sipped on the beating heart, made for consumption for resident vampires and any creature that feeds on the biomass of others, I caught a glimpse of her before her life as a witch, when her mother had been alive, when she protected her from the terrible things under her bed, those real things that your parents or grandparents don't tell you about because most don't have the words, or the sight. After her death, however, the veil of protection Jamie's mother had draped over her daughter was lifted and she was exposed to the outer dark. And it got inside her. It whispered to her. In a way, it led her to where she was right now. How's the bio-slush? I asked. Tangy. So, what exactly was the point in all that? Did you learn anything from... that guy's head? I've got a general location. We'll need to go by Scraft. I don't trust that gravity will work the same where we're going. Scraft? It's better than saying spacecraft, isn't it? I concede. This isn't exactly comfortable, is it? Do stop moaning, dear. It's the best I could do on short notice. You're a magician. Only works as far as my focus goes. I lose that, we lose the scraft. Don't worry, it's a rental. Ahead, the High Council Senate building blurred into view. A jutting, razor-sharp pyramid of breathing crystal, transparasteel and durocrete that stabbed mercilessly through the skyline, like a perfect shard of glass broken from the axis itself. As for how tall and wide it was, Jamie frowned, and as we ascended above commercial altitude, she nodded in sudden understanding. The temple wasn't just in the center of the city, it was the central district. The pyramid's transparasteel towered over the central district's buildings. There were offices, apartment blocks, universities, plazas of differing vibes and purposes that twisted in and out of each other as if the buildings had been born and grown together, like brothers that went different directions in life, one artsy and one scientific, but never left each other's sides. Perhaps, or definitely, literally. Whoa. Jamie breathed. The temple breathed with her. She saw the temple, and the temple saw her. It's quite a spectacle, isn't it? And that guy back there, Radha, his office is in there? On the Upper West Side, soon to be dead center upon ascension. They'll just rework the building, against his will, but that is the way of things. You mean buildings don't like being torn apart, drilled, hammered, and rebuilt over and over without their consent? Shocking. Right? It's... it's really beautiful here. Christ, was that a smile? He's not here. And no. I think I saw a smile. You definitely, definitely didn't. We turned south then, descending towards the coast. The sky began to darken, but Jamie somehow knew that it barely had anything to do with the passage of time. Time's passage through here bends often until it breaks. We found ourselves far from the papal sector, the coastal yards and shards of the demi-monde, as Grandma had called them. Why did she call them that? I shrugged. I guess we'll find out. 
All I know is we're looking for a lighthouse of sorts. The speeder's console bleeped. It's getting misty out there. Can you even see a place to land? Technically, no. Then just stay level. We'll try to clear some of this mist. Just think... Clear thoughts? Whatever the hell those are. Just try and picture... Nothing. Can you imagine that? Nothing. No light, no dark, no up, no down, no life. No time. Without end. Redgrin. Yes, yes. Sorry, I was heading the way of the tangential prey. Oh look, the mist has cleared. Slightly. Right. Let's just set her down. <laughs> Fucking hell. You call that a landing? You call that a face? Ouch. Apologies. I'm sensitive about my parking skills. I only seem to mess it up when people are watching me do it. Jamie smiled. And it was a genuine smile. Tis the way of things. I stood up and hopped out of the speeder into the shallow water in which it now sat partially submerged. That would cool the engines down at least. They wheezed and moaned in the way engines do when their valves are in desperate need of unblocking and regrounding. There was also quite a strong smell of fuel in the cockpit. I offered my hand to Jamie. She took it as she exited and then released upon contact with the ice-cold, unforgiving water the cold stabbed into and splayed through her toes like dry ice. Ah, son of a bitch! Suck it up, rookie. Jamie glared. Rookie? Came back from the dead for the first time, just learned how to fly and constantly asking questions? I'd say rookie. Go to hell. Been there. Came to pick you up, in fact. I could send you there right now, you half-breed piece of sh- Easy does it. Acutanian water grips at your nerves like salt on ice. Control yourself and stop swearing. Thanks to you, I'll have to include an explicit content marker on this week's episode. What are you- Never mind. There's the lighthouse, can you see it? We could see it. Or rather, its bright pinnacle jutting out above the mist at regular intervals. Every twenty seconds or so, the light would disappear and then reappear again. We made our way up the jagged coastline towards the lighthouse, still unable to see an entrance of any kind. The ground beneath our feet was littered with sand and stone. Mostly stone, of the spiky variety. Every step felt like a passive-aggressive insult on the soles of my poor feet. Stop complaining about your feet. Are you sure this is the right way? The psychic trace I was trying to get Gordor to contextualize in the cloud earlier. It leads in there. If he'd been kind enough to be more specific and less shouty, we'd have more information. Gordor came here once to deliver something. So either that something is no longer in there, meaning it's been transported to somewhere else, or... It never left at all. Or perhaps... Both. Both? Jamie asked, slightly happier to not have her feet submerged in the oceans of the Aquitanian mid-Atlantic. Can you clear a little more of this mist? It could be cloaking a device or some sort of deterrent to drive away prowlers. I doubt many people would be prowling around a place like this. Nothing corporeal, anyway. I'll try. Can I get some light? Renvi kentrolak setvuf mal. That's better, Jamie said. Now taking the lead, forging our way through the fog was no easy task. Shapes began to form around us as we struggled on. Arms made of clouds seemed to surround us individually in a cold embrace, attempting to pull us apart. In the mist, what I saw terrified me. Shapes of things once lost, then found, and then lost again. Zerzero. Kaya. Jamie squeezed my hand. You okay? Have you seen her yet? I asked, not bothering to elaborate, knowing she was fully aware of whom I was referring to. Everywhere I look, I can feel her. Not just out here. Inside, too. Bonded souls, when bound together, never truly heal. It would hurt too much. What are we even doing here? Okay, so we scared the next corrupt favorite of the High Council by decapitating a disintegrating car thief, but what's it all for? That message we sent, that rather 
messy message was for nobody other than him. Rada has ties to the Vandalore family, and personal ties, so I'm told, to Goldor. We need Rada to know he's being watched. It'll make it far easier to divine his motive. It was Grison's idea, really. Wait, Jamie said, and we stopped. So, you're going ahead with their plans without their help? Getting them back, all of them, is going to take time. Time we don't really have. We cannot let our friends in the High Council, the good people, the ones trying to put an end to the corruption, be forced out by Rada's ascension. With his appointment comes his people. And if they get their claws in, well, we're screwed by the time things break down. And they will break down. Just then, the door into the lighthouse came into view. The door was old, rusted, not unlike a basic door on a submarine, manually pressurized with a wheel at its center. It didn't look as if it was going to open easily. With our thoughts, Jamie and I gripped the door, pulling, squeezing, and twisting with the telekinetic forces of the never-not-there. The door whined and groaned like an old piece of busted machinery. It sounded like an engine with a metal railing spike through its heart. Try and widen the door frame while I pull, I said. Jamie nodded. She widened her stance, bringing her arms closer together, almost hugging herself, then pushing her hands out like you would when trying to open an elevator door manually, which happens to me a lot. That's it, Jamie said, loosening up. I can feel it. Keep pushing. All at once, there was a deafening crack as the mechanism gave and the metal door sprang out of its frame. We held it there, mid-air, motionless, then dropped it. It crashed to the floor with an even louder thwack. As it fell away, it revealed the lighthouse's interior. A spiral staircase ran through the center of the building, providing access to the light at the top, no doubt. Perhaps some other spaces for storing cargo or bulbs. But that was the only thing, to Jamie at least, that to her resembled a lighthouse that you might find on Earth. Beneath the staircase was a cube-shaped pod with windows on either side that did nothing to reveal whatever lay within, as their veneer was solid. The upper and lower borders of the cube, no doubt the support structures, were silver, and the pod itself was a confusing, brooding grey. It was smooth in texture, some kind of alloy metal. Dense alloy. There were markings carved on the cube's border, and in the dead center of the gray miasma in the middle. It looked tall enough and wide enough to fit two to three humanoids inside comfortably, and there was a console to the left of the pod that came out of the floor. Where its power was sourced from wasn't clear, but it was glowing blue. Pulsating, in fact. A new sense of dread began to spark inside me. Is there something in there? We, or whoever happens to be paying a visit to this hidden place, have to get inside it. It's a transport, not unlike the speeder we borrowed to get here in the first place. There's only one key difference. It's not designed for land? It's not designed for land. And you think Goldor has taken a trip down under? If he has, it's not going to be a pleasant voyage. No. No, he's just an errand boy. Fix this, steal that, kill them, blah blah blah. Thankfully, he lives in the past tense forevermore. Maybe he was delivering a message from Rada. Maybe someone met him here. There's only one way to find out. We're going under, aren't we? To the Akitanian subterranean, if you're willing. Well, you are my ride home. That's reason enough. Shall we? The Undercity was vast so vast it had quite forgotten itself. Many thousands of meters down, quite a lot had been forgotten. The pressure is just under 300 atmospheres, a lot of weight considering the almost impossible size of the buildings, taller than some Jamie had seen on the surface. To her, it looked like some sort of steampunk Atlantis that time had left behind. The only life that seemed visible down at this depth was sea life none of which she recognized, but they looked right at home among the backdrop of something so spectacular, and something so broken and confused. All the lights were faulty. They flickered, revealing the building's interior windows, 
all but momentarily. I feel like I'm swimming through the 1950s, Jamie said, gazing out of the now transparent, from the inside anyway, window. It's painfully beautiful, isn't it? What is it? Did New York sink after the Cold War in your universe or something? Interesting theory, but no. This is still Acatania, an undercity, from the old days. The old days? Well, old is a perspective, of course, but you have to put the old angels somewhere, since they can't really die. Demons too, the archdemons anyway, that can afford to live in a place like this. Afford to live? This place is falling apart! The Acatanians have been too busy with their new gods. So busy, in fact, that they've forgotten to bother to maintain the ones that got them here in the first place. I mean, these guys aren't as old as the Prime Directives, but if you ask the right one, they might have a story about the time before humanoid domination, when gods as big as planets walked the cosmos, and this here city would have been a mere speck on that landscape. Then the new regime in cycle 2020, so long ago, began the campaign to downsize the old ones and dump them here. To live, or to rot. It depends who you're having the conversation with, I suppose. And that's why we're here, isn't it? You're looking for someone. Who? Someone who can help us. Six. The old woman smoked. The rising shapes against the sky matching the wiry sprouting hair that itself remained motionless in the wind. The smoke was copying her style. The woman was tall, dressed in black, long limbs, long neck, long skeletal fingers, nails stained green and black, her very being a symbiosis of spider-like proclivity. Her eyes were a darkly neutral grey, her eyebrows serious and pinched. A swirling early morning red sky glared down as the rising light began to penetrate the skyline. She wasn't supposed to be here, on this flat piece of seeming nothingness, teeming in the never light. A submerged, swaying skyline of solid colour. A shapeless ground of some misspent apocalypse, solid stars above. Approaching. Stars of warning. No, she wasn't supposed to be here. She wasn't supposed to be... anywhere. Then, where had she got the cigarettes? She had never been without them in life. Even that part of life that didn't require breathing. But never thought she would be able to get to them here. Or rather, that they could get to her. Somehow, they always found a way. The old woman walked. Her gangly form plagued the sun-cracked asphalt with uneven steps, trips, falls, face plants, teeth marks. So, it seemed that not too much had changed. She was still old. She always seemed to be old, so old that nobody can remember when she was young. No offense to anyone present. Although ungainly and uneven, she made progress. The heat radiated down like an ever-approaching meteorite, casting the woman's mind back to her part in the evacuation of Yonora Prime, and then she forgot. It was a tolerated madness in her current state. At present, if present or presence itself was even relevant here, the old woman was gravely injured. Alive, yes, and healing, but in the kind of way that can create future problems. Just because she was able to foresee those problems didn't exactly make dealing with the present pain any easier. There were hundreds, perhaps thousands of dirty, rust-coloured streaks and gashes in her arms and legs, and she was presuming her torso. Each wound was encrusted with diamond, ever-hardening, ever-growing. Occasionally her ripped, yet no less flowing cloak would catch on one of her diamond wounds, and the pain would spur her on. She was the type of being to spur. She raised a stringy limb to view the cigarette between her many, many fingers. She smiled, confirming that it was indeed a cursed burner, one that would never end, and one that she literally fed on for mere entertainment, 
here in this dead field of monotone sacrifice. Curses can be twisted just as easily as truths can be buried, was the first thought that had registered in her mind since she had apparently re-realized her own existence. It was strange. She knew that she wasn't dead, but she wasn't exactly sure if she was even slightly alive either. Then came the diamond pain, and she battled with the idea that death may be preferable. All she could do was walk crookedly and smoke endlessly. And listen. Just listen to what she was sure were voices far away where the landscape finally seemed to take some sort of shape in this world. Somewhere, she supposed, between the literal and the metaphorical. Nothing new. Nothing is ever new, but she couldn't deny that the horizon was beginning to change. She briefly wondered what might happen if she was simply to change direction and walk away from the possible signs of life. She wondered whether she would be safer in the nothing, which is where she thought she would forever reside. Her abode. The Bay Terrain, her brain said, silently calling up at the morphing sky. To be sane or cloned, bring me together, all alone. Grandma, I am home. She stopped. Grandma, was that her name? It came to her that she was a being that had many names, and that this new her better be careful to choose the right one. Was she out of sync with reality? Most likely, but which reality? Which synchronicity? She began to recall the frozen days when other beings would fall out of sync with reality when they touched her, and that was the first time she had felt a smile cut into her face. She touched a jagged finger to her newly ruined cheek and scratched, the smile widening. Stay, her brain said. Speak. She shook her head. She felt compelled to speak beyond her words entrapped in souls that scream her name. One particular soul. Grandma, I am home. She looked behind her. It was a slow and painful effort. All she could see were her own uneven footfalls in the freezing sand. There was nobody here. Only the landscape was marked by her passing, before being once removed and buried. Her blood ballistic eyes narrowed as she attempted to make out the firm identity of a small object some yards away. She limped, pulled, scratched, spat. Closer now, she stopped drawing on the never-ending burner. This time with more purpose than she had felt in, well, forever. The object appeared to be a tree at further distance, but upon closer inspection, when resuming her walk, Jean noticed that this tree was more of a large branch, with no seeming roots beneath it. The branch was Y-shaped, tall but not as tall as she was. G she had decided just to stick with a single letter until more memories returned, wasn't even sure how tall she was. She just knew that this oddly placed and even more oddly shaped branch was about half her height. The diamond pane flared and she gritted her broken teeth, instinctively grabbing and leaning on the branch for support. However, whatever inner gravity that supported this strange stick, or cane as she had just decided to refer to it, was no match for her as yet unknown weight, and both she and the cane collapsed on the freezing and sand-filled asphalt. For a long while she lay there, motionless, breathless. Then finally she raised her head, rolling over and squinting in the brightness. Using the cane to steady herself, she rose up and continued her journey. It was the least I could do. Hailfire Falls, a voice in her head said. You must get to Tailfire Falls. Only then will I be of use to you, and you to me. Too long have you stayed your hand. No more.
All of a sudden, the old woman was very, very aware of her throat. Within it was a scream that had started further down and was working its way up like vomit. The old woman then realized that she was barefoot, and there was a small thought within the realization that if she did actually vomit, she wouldn't have to worry about ruining her shoes. But that thought was far too quiet to be registered on her face. I'm alive. Somehow, I'm still alive. No, that's not right. No. I'm sorry, Grandma. I had to. No. What did you do? Do you know what you've done? A lying red sun dawns over the solid Dinem Acatania in cycle frequency 4326. The old woman's screams carried for miles, many miles across the scarlet rivers and through the caves of Black Diamond and out onto the parched desert of the real. The bigger the realization, the louder the scream. The Soli Tududinem was a wasteland dry and barren, rocks as sharp as razors, cave canyons as deep as entire oceans with no water to speak of, sentient sand with differing aspirations in life. A figure stood against the sun, their shadow cast behind them like a monster stalker of the demimond, the half-world beyond. All he had was a landslider, or slider for short. A vehicle used, as you no doubt have guessed, for sliding across land at speed, or rather, hovering above it so as to avoid the dangerous ground below. The figure was alone, not counting his vehicle and so he had taken to giving it a name, Xenia. The figure spoke it out loud, almost in response to my grandmother's shouts of rage. It sounded good to him, both the screaming and the name, but for different reasons. Xenia. It was a nice name, a nice name for a nice slider. It ran okay. It resembled a bike more than anything else, he had once had a push bike when he was a kid. The figure remembered that as he squinted in the red morning starlight. Remembered how everyone called it pink because his father has got it second hand from a car boot sale. No doubt it had been well used and had at some point in his life been painted crimson when it was new, but had also no doubt been left out in the rain once too often and so had faded to what the figure had always maintained as magenta. The slider was, of course, not a tricycle. To start, it was about six feet in length, slightly more if you measured from the thrust flaps at the rear all the way along to the directional steering vanes at the front. They jutted out to an upside-down double T-shape at the end of each outrigger attachment. In the middle of the slider's outrigger, extending out a few inches, was the slider's sensor array, which, although it was functioning, hadn't picked up any signs of life in days or however long it was the figure had been here. He, of all people, definitely wasn't sure. The figure, the man, his name escapes me. For now, let us call him the Birdman squinted in the sun. He listened to the resurrecting screams of the old ones, and he felt a spark of hopeless fear, or fearless hope, that he might again see the smiles of those he loved. Again, the Birdman looked at his Xenia, he tapped at the console that was housed just in front of the slider's seat for ease of access, and he commenced a long-range scan. Come on, he says. If I can still hear it, so can you. Xenia bleeped. The birdman raised a scarred eyebrow. What have we here? He kicked the slider into gear and faced it in the general direction the scan was pointing him in. Then he set the auto-nav to on and set off at a leisurely pace across the star-cracked asphalt. He pulled his canteen from his belt and sipped rationally, wondering whether it was worth making a journey so far from the camp without any proper provision. He clipped his canteen to his belt and put his foot down, gaining speed. Xenia bleeped again. Localizing, she chirped. Much obliged, the birdman said. If you're a podcast clown like I am, 
you must have dreamed about starting your own. Let me tell you, my dreadful darlings, it's never easy, but it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It was either that or waste away in my own subjective ascendance. Of course, it can be more than just a little overwhelming to know how to get started. Buzzsprout can help you launch your podcast professionally and in style, linking you with all of the major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more. Join us up in the buzzing, sprouting podcast cloud to breathe in the renowned analytical sound of the accurate analysis and promotion tools provided. Follow the link in the show notes below to start your journey and receive a $20 Amazon gift card. We're waiting for you. Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast.